Hey everyone, welcome to ABC's Anesthesia. Um, now, today I've got Megan and we're going to do another practice viva. So this is going out on YouTube, um, which I'll have to cut short. And when we're about to start the discussion of the viva, that all will be in the full video on the final exam course. And I'll have a link to that as well. So, you know, big welcome, Megan. Thanks so much for, you know, for your time to be examined live. Um, how do you feel? Oh, I'm a bit nervous. Uh, it's not every day that you get uh, filmed doing a viva. So but I think it'll be good. No, it absolutely will be good. And, and, you know, it's one of those things where if you have a bit of stress, you just learn stuff better as well. And I'll, you know, give you all these notes and everything to go home and study. Um, is it, have you had lots of vivas? Is there any particular feedback of things you want to work on? I think this is, so we're four weeks out from the exam. So I think this is number 38 ish. Um, oh, yeah, I've been counting them to motivate myself to keep doing them. Yeah, I think just working on those like competing priorities, um, like you talked about in the course, I think would be really great. Like when you've got sort of two things you want to be doing at the same time, but you can't, um, or when there's sort of like no one right answer and you want to sort of talk about why you've chosen to do what you're going to do, I think it would be great if we could work on that. Great. Yeah. You know, in, in real life, the only wrong answer is no answer often. Like you've you got to do something, right? Um, and I think this exam, yeah, like for anyone who doesn't know, like this exam really, does feel like real life like nothing's perfect you have to make compromises you have to choose the you know choose out of a bad bunch of options but plan for the difficulty and i think it's a really really awesome way of actually preparing for real life and i, I got a lot out of this exam um there's many reasons what, what i didn't i didn't get a lot out of the exam but this is i, I feel like the vibe was definitely a, a good um, real life version of uh, what we do so megan I'm just going to share the screen with you and for everyone i'll just read out the stem um, and then we'll give you some time to work through it so the same is you're on the night shift at your tertiary hospital. You are called to the resus bay in emergency as a 55-year-old male presents to emergency with severe respiratory distress. You arrive to see a patient with high flow nasal oxygenation, um, sorry, high flow nasal oxygen, such as an OptiFlow Thrive, um, looking unwell with labored irregular breathing, sets 92%, unable to speak due to respiratory distress. What do you do when you arrive as the doctor leading the resus? Take however long you need, maybe one to two minutes to write down your notes and get your uh, thoughts into gear, um, and then we'll go to you in a few seconds. Okay, Megan, so in that time, um, what did you do? Like, what did you write down on your piece of paper? Um, yep, yeah, so, I mean, I can hold it up, but my handwriting is pretty terrible. So yeah, That's right, you can guide us through, yeah. I might just um, just read it to you. So I wrote down, tertiary hospital, ED, 55-year-old man, stats of 92, respiratory distress. And then I spent some time about thinking, thinking about my opening statement, um, which mm -hmm. I have to tell you now. Or yeah, actually, why don't we crack on? So, uh, candidate two, three, four. What do you do when you arrive? Do you do you understand the question? Yes, I do. Great. What do you do when you arrive as the doctor leading the resus? Uh, so this is a critically unwell middle-aged man uh, with signs and symptoms of severe respiratory distress, and the possibility of impending respiratory arrest needs to be considered. I would attend immediately. Um, sorry, there are clinical and logistic considerations here. Uh, logistically, I would attend immediately, introduce myself to the team as quickly as possible and assign roles. Clinically, I would um, uh, get a targeted history from the patient or um, any attending family members if possible uh, and conduct an A, &E, a to E assessment with the aims um, of creating a differential diagnosis list uh, in order to target specific treatment. In terms of my A to E assessment on, uh, on airway, I would assess the patency, threats to patency, anatomy and physiology of this man's airway. In terms of breathing, I would assess his effort, efficacy, and the effect of end or uh, the effect of hypoxia on his end organs. I would consider instilling BiPAP immediately, given he seems to be um, 
not thriving on high-grade nasopharms. I would assess his cardiovascular status uh, by assessing his vitals and conducting a type of cardiovascular exam. In terms of disability, I would assess his GCS. And in terms of PE, I would expose him uh, and consider adjuncts to my assessment, which available in the in GVA may be a mobile chest X-ray, a focused TTE, and an ABG. What was that for a focused what, sorry? Uh, echocardiogram, TTE. Okay, good, good. Um, so let's say you arrive to see the patient, uh, you know the numbers, the, the cardiovascular side of things, the patient's heart rate is 120, uh, it looks like sinus rhythm on the monitor, blood pressure is 130 on 80, um, definitely looks like the patient's in respiratory distress. Uh, what, what was your breathing assessment specifically? Uh, the effort, Yep. efficacy, mm-hmm. and the end organ effects of hypoxia. Yeah, so you don't really see too much from the end organ point of view. How do you assess the efficacy? Um, so that would be a gross assessment of the saturations, yep, um, as well as um, you know his ability to speak in sentences and words, um, and his ability to comply with a standard cardiovascular examination, which will include auscultation of his chest and hopefully a mobile chest X-ray. Right. Let's say uh, you l- listen to the lungs and just looks you can hear normal air entry on both sides, um, but re- respiratory is rapid. That's ninety percent. You've got the high flow in. There's a lot of noise around the room. The effort of breathing looks labored and irregular as well. It looks like the patient's really struggling to breathe. How else can you assess breathing? Um, so if, you can, if the chest air entry, if the air entry sounds normal and there's no um, you know, wheeze or, or crepitations, mm-hmm. um, then I'd be wanting to consider, um, so I'd be wanting to tailor my airway assessment uh, to the cause of this man's respiratory distress, right. uh, which would be the patency and stridor, dysphonia, dysphagia, drooling, tripoding, sitting up, sitting forward, yep. uh, my standard obstructed airway assessment. Good. And, and let's say you do that and the patient's definitely sitting forward. looks like they're struggling. Uh, they aren't particularly drilling, but you can hear some stridorous um, noises. You do get a chest x-ray immediately and you see that they've got a stenotomy scar there and it looks recent when you check the chest. So you are able to receive a past history from the brother, patient's brother. So type 2 diabetic, hypertension. They had a big operation last week and all you see is that stenotomy scar, but the patient's unable to tell you anything. There's no collaborative history all the all he knows is he's a big operation there's no history of any lung issues um that he said patient's meds are metformin eternal atorvastatin and has apparently has an allergy to sugamidex what else do you want to know on assessment and what are you most concerned about in this situation uh so on assessment i'd want to know the indication uh an exact operation that was performed uh, mm-hmm. i want to know for any immediate post-operative complications uh, when this man, man underwent his sternotomy and where that sternotomy was conducted. Uh, if it was in my local hospital, obviously that's great. I can access the records. Um, and then I'd, uh, but in terms of what I'm most concerned about, I'm most concerned that this is a significant complication of the procedure that this man has undergone, which is obviously major thoracic surgery. And in the immediate uh, sense, I'd be thinking about pericardial tamponade, um, comp- He's had, you know, for example, a primary bypass surgery, a kinking of one of those vessels and significant ischemia. Yeah. Uh, I've been about hemothorax and pneumothorax. Yeah. Uh, those are the ones that are coming to mind. Yeah, great. So uh, you do, do get a TTE and there's no signs of any cardiac compromise, just a hypercontractile, uh, like this, a very sympathetically charged patient. Um, volume status looks fine. There's no valve issues at all on, on TTE. Um, and on chest x so yeah, you don't see any effusions at all. Um, you do manage to get some notes and there is um, mention of thymectomy. Um, what, do you, what do you think of that? And what do you do? Um, so in a 55-year-old man, um, that makes me think about the possibility that he's got myasthenia gravis, which mm-hmm. would explain this presentation. Uh, I note that myasthenia gravis has a biphasic 
not a biphasic, a bimodal incidence um, with initially uh, women below the ages of 30 and men over the ages of 50, and that thymectomy is often um, a therapeutic intervention uh, to hopefully improve um, myasthenics control or achieve remission. Um, so I'm now thinking that this is a primary um, respir primary respiratory failure in the setting of neuromuscular weakness. Okay. Uh, and let's say, what would you do to try to, I guess, confirm that or to treat this pro patient's problem? Um, so sorry, just to put a name to it, this, I think this is myasthenic crisis. Yep. Sorry, with those keywords. So in terms of confirming that, um, I think history examination investigation again. Uh, so history, our history is consistent with that. I'd be looking to ask this man if he has myasthenia gravis. I'd be looking at what treatment he has been on since his thymectomy. Uh, if there was initial improvement of his symptoms, if he's been compliant with his treatment recently, and so that may include periodostigmine, it may include steroids, uh, or if he's missed any of his treatments, if he's noted that he's more weak, uh, I'd be looking to see if he's got um, mitosis as well to me, confirmatory of, of what's going on. Um, and then other factors on examination would be uh, global weakness, such as axial weakness or limb weakness. That's a great assessment. He definitely confirms by nodding that he has myasthenia gravis, um, and you're able to collaborate, get some final collaborative history. He's had the, the disease for about six years. Um, he was on pyridostigmine at about 500 milligrams per day in total dosing. Um, you can definitely see Toast is, he definitely has a weakness of his muscles at this point um, from what you can grossly look at. But what do you do now in this patient? So the treatment for a myasthenic crisis um, is uh, pyridostigmine or other anticholinesterases. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but ultimately, uh, I think this kind of requires intubation and ventilation um, whilst we establish um, Plasmapheresis or IVIG in order to achieve um, to achieve control of this myasthenic crisis because those treatments will probably take more time to take effect than he has um, in light of his significant um, respiratory compromise. Yeah. So is, while you're trying to get that in place and get all the in, uh, gear for intubation, uh, what would you give? What would I give? Yeah. Uh, so he's on 500 milligrams a day of pyridostigmine. Oh, and, sorry, and he's. He hasn't taken that, sorry. He's been non-compliant. He thought the thymectomy was uh, curative. And, uh, yeah, sorry, we forgot to mention that. Yeah, so I would convert his pyridostigmine dose into a neostigmine dose. And I'm just trying to remember what that is. I think it's 30 milligrams of pyridostigmine equals one milligram of neostigmine. So I would um, consider giving him a dose of that, taking into account that I still think this man is going to require intubation and ventilation mm -hmm. and not giving him his... Neostigmine may actually make that process simpler in terms of dosing of neuromuscular block of blocking drugs and safe transport to ICU. Okay. Um, let's say you do give some neostigmine and he does get resolution of his symptoms um, and therefore you've got a bit more time at this point. Um, tell me, how do you classify uh, mycene gravis? Um, so it can be classified according to the etiology. But in terms of the severity, um, the Osman Jenkins classification system, also known as the Myasthenia Gravis American Foundation of Classification, I think, mm -hmm. uh, it's a one to five scale, with one being um, mild weakness of the ocular muscles only, five being um, requirement for you know, intubation and ventilation, and categories two, three, and four having subcategories A and B each, uh, which is according to whether there is ocular uh, weakness primarily or, um, sorry, ocular and vulva or respiratory weakness primarily or axial uh, limb weakness. Okay. Um, that's good. So let's say this 
current crisis uh, resolves completely. The patient goes home, has a lovely life, is now on kind of my senior grav- gravis management and, and treatment. It doesn't have a thymus anymore, uh, and that was done. Um, now, the same patient presents three years later, and they present with a s- small bowel obstruction. Surgeons have assessed a small bowel obstruction, presumably due to some level of adhesions from a previous um, uh, operation, um, for, like say, let's say a hernia, and now they're, they're scheduled for a laparotomy. What do you want to know on assessment? Um, so I break this down into assessment of the small bowel obstruction and assessment of the myasthenia gravis. Mm-hmm. And I break each of those categories down into the history of examination investigation. So in terms of the small bowel obstruction, I would like to know the duration of the small bowel obstruction, um, the severity of this pain and whether there's been any signs or symptoms of perforation and associated with that any signs or symptoms of sepsis or septic shock, um, as well as an assessment of his volume with an electrolyte and acid base status. In terms of his myasthenia gravis, I would want to know his Austin Jenkins classification grading in terms of the severity of his symptoms in a day-to-day time, his current treatment, and when he was last able to take that and when it's likely that he was last able to absorb that period. Uh-huh. Treatment he's on, I would classify it into whether he's on periodostigmine or another anticholinesterase, um, whether he's on uh, antimuscarinic therapy, how effective that is, that is whether he's also on immunosuppression, whether that's steroid-based or non-steroid-based, such as azathioprine, any complications related to that, and his requirement for IVIG or plasmapheresis, and if so, when that was last given. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd want to classify whether his weakness was primarily respiratory and vulva or um, axial and limb. Mm-hmm. Um, these things would inform my management um, of his patient and their small bowel obstruction. Yeah, what, what else do you want to know about his uh, the patient as they come into uh I guess you're uh, either when you review them in emergency or when they come to see you. Uh, what else on the, for the smaller bowel obstruction do you want to know? So I'd like to know um, what uh, what fluid resuscitation they have had, um, the location and extent of the likely small bowel obstruction, any perforation, as I mentioned before, what access they currently have in situ, and whether it's a nasogastric and whether their stomach is being decompressed. Yeah. Um, which will give me an idea of the urgency um, of the management of the small bowel obstruction. I'd also want to know a full anesthetic history. Yep. Um, Good. Let's say I'm going to give you some information now. Actually, besides that, in, for my skin gravis, is, is there any other organ involvement that would be particularly interesting for you? Oh. Yes, my skin gravis patients can have um, cardiac antibodies um, classically against the beta 1, beta 2 receptors uh, and the orionidine receptor, which can result in um, significant arrhythmias, myocarditis, um, and cardiac failure. Uh, this can cause autonomic instability as well. Okay, good. There's no signs of any cardiac involvement. Um, ECG looks pretty normal with occasional atrial ectopics. Um, patient is sinus tacky. So you've done a uh, doctor's diabetes kind of assessment of uh, the uh, the patient's state currently. They've had two liters of recess, afebrile, blood pressure is 100 on 50, uh, sorry, 120 on 50. Um, and uh, They've got an outline inside you from being in emergency. They've been resuscitated. They look stable enough to go ahead. Uh, Mycene gravis, so let's say they're class two, or let's say class three. They've got on their regular periodostigmine of about 500 per day. They're on 10 milligram of prednisolone, six years I mentioned, but now plus three, so it's nine years since the diagnosis. What's your anesthetic plan for this patient? So my anesthetic plan for this patient, I would uh, break down into preparation intraoperatively and postoperatively, including disposition. In terms of preparation, I'd be wanting to um, conduct. Um, uh, I'd be wanting to conduct a rapid sequence induction, um, 
and I'd be able to do that with a skilled anaesthetic nurse um, and uh, with monitoring available. The additional monitoring of the monitoring in addition to the standard ASCO monitoring that I would want would be an arterial line, which I know this patient already has, mm-hmm. a five lead ECG, a BIS, a temperature probe, and an IDC. Um, I'd conduct a rapid sequence intubation. Now, the use of um, neuromuscular blocking agents in myasthenia uh, gravis we're aware is controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that this patient will be um, have approximately 2.9 times the ED95 for a uh, depolarizing agent and require approximately only 10% um, of the do- standard dose for a um, non-depolarizing agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is typically the choice. Um, but I know that this patient is also allergic to Cigabidex. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to know something what that allergy is. Yeah, let's, um, see, let's see some anaphylaxis. Yeah, okay. Um, but in this patient, um, given that my goal is to achieve rapid control and securement of this patient's airway, avoiding aspiration um, after placement of a micro or, uh, or a gastric or nasogastric tube and suctioning of that, I would elect to use succinothonium at 2.5, 2.9 times uh, the standard dose. The 2.9 number, where's that from? Um. I actually can't remember the source. Sorry, That's right. I think, but um, yeah, sorry. That's remember. fine. Higher dose, uh, and and so what is this dilemma? Like, what's this? You, you mentioned temp, you need ten percent of the uh, non-depolarizer. What's the implication of you using sucks now at a higher dose? Um, so the implication is um, potentially greater side effects in terms of cardiovascular side effects, um, but also um, unpredictable duration of blockade, um, which could um, make surgical conditions more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say, I, I, would, I mean, I would use the lead and fall criteria to consider this, but I would also say that um, a prolonged neuromuscular block uh, is potentially not overly problematic in the sense that I, this is a patient I'm extremely unlikely to be extubating at the end of the case. It's mm-hmm. very rare to ICU um, just because of, you know, the severity of his disease, uh, and the fact that he's having a you know a major body cavity surgery, he's having a laparotomy. Okay. Um, would would you ever thought of doing any other technique without using muscle relaxant? Yeah. So um, I guess there's sort of broadly speaking three options. So there's the the two that I've already discussed, and then uh, avoiding um, neuromuscular blocking drugs altogether, which in my hands would involve um, uh, induction using a bolus of fentanyl. Absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, uh, and some lignocaine as well, noting that lignocaine is broadly considered safe in my senior gravis patients, although it can you know, worsen neuromuscular function. Hmm. And what do you, what other drugs, generally speaking, can worsen muscle function that you want to avoid? Yeah, so there are a number. Um, uh, uh, broadly speaking, this can be broken down into those that affect presynaptic, synaptic, and prosynaptic function. Um, but some common ones that are often discussed just to avoid listing everything would be beta blockers and glycosides, local anesthetics. Yeah, okay, good. So let's say whatever you do, you are forced to give muscle relaxation. And let's say you've already given suxmethonium, but let's say for whatever, it has worn off now and the, the surgeon requires more relaxation. What do you do? Yeah, so this would be a discussion um, with the surgeon and I think would be informed by whether I was planning on extubating this patient or not. Um, given the reasons that we already discussed and the fact that I'm not planning on extubating this patient, uh, I'd be happy to give a very small dose of um, rocuronium, uh, noting that this does likely commit us uh, to giving this patient intubated and transferred to ICU. Yeah, good. Let's say, just for argument's sake, if you were to, for whatever reason, need to reverse this patient, what would you do? So, given they've had anaphylaxis um, to Sugambidex, 
our options remain like a pyrrolate and neostigmine, uh, which need to be uh, considered in the context of the fact um, that this patient is on pyridostigmine and we want to avoid precipitating a cholinergic crisis. Mm. Uh, so I think the safest thing to do in this patient um, would be to simply wait and allow time while optimising all conditions for metabolism or excretion to occur. Mm. Um, but in, say, a more elective patient who is allergic to um, Sugamidex, that would need to be sort of weighed and considered um, in, in light of, of say, a plant extubation. Let's say you hand over the case to someone, to, to one of your registrars, you're about to go home, um, and for whatever odd reason, your registrar now reverses the um, patient because the surgeon or the ICU, I, ICU said they've got no beds, and for whatever reason, they said, look, let's give it a go at reversing. Um, you get, see an alarm call um, as you're in the change room, about to get ready to go home, uh, and you rush in to see that the heart rate is 10. Uh, what do you do? Um, so the heart rate of 10, um, I would ask the surgeons to stop, scan the monitors, um, examine whether this was a, um, a sinus bradycardia or another rhythm, such as a heart block. Mm -hmm. um, most likely the treatment that needs to be given um, for this patient is um, 600 micrograms of atropine, and mm -hmm. I think that this is a cholinergic crisis. Which what, should be what is a cholinergic crisis? So a cholinergic crisis... Um, is a manifestation of excess acylcholine um, in, the, um, in the synapse, which typically causes um, bradycardia, um, bronchorrhea, uh, bronch uh, bronchospasm, uh, and then all the sludge kind of things as well. So salivation, urine, urination, lacrimation, diarrhea, uh, increased peristalsis. Great. So let's say you give the atropine, um, and in spite of giving the atropine 600 mics, but the heart rate is still 10 and you see a rhythm um, and it looks like the patient's actually in heart block, a third-degree heart block. What yeah. do you do? Um, so this is extremely concerning. I would press the buzzer um, to call for help. Mm -hmm. uh, I would temporise by um, considering another bolus of atropine or making sure that my first bolus has gone through the line. Uh, I would ask for transcutaneous pacing to be set up as soon as possible mm -hmm. and for a senior anaesthetic nurse to prepare an infusion of isopropylene. Yep. While you're getting, while you're getting the um, uh, transcutaneous pacing, uh, you give atropine, the heart rate is still 10, the blood pressure on the art line reads at 50. Um, what else can you do? Um, so if the blood pressure is 50, that's my threshold for CPR. So I would commence CPR according to the ALS algorithm. Okay. Um, uh, tell me what you do. So in instituting ALS algorithm, I would declare that this is an arrest. Mm -hmm. um, ask uh, probably the surgeons um, to commence CPR at a rate of 100 to 120 um, compressions per minute. Uh, I would ask for a rapid rhythm check, noting that we've, you know, we've, we've had an ECG on, but that could have changed in the last few seconds. Uh, and that, that rhythm check will either push us down the shockable or non-shockable algorithm. Let's say that on the rhythm check, you do see that it is um, the same bradycardia 10 heart block, complete heart yep. block. So this is a PEA arrest. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, we're down the, down the non-shockable algorithm, I would dump the shock according to the coached algorithm and mm -hmm. kind of a milligram of adrenaline um, before proceeding with another two minutes of CPR and considering my 4 is at 40. Good. You managed to get a heart rate up to 20. It's still complete heart block. The pacer arrives. Uh, the defib arrives immediately. Um, what do you, how do you... How do you institute transcutaneous pacing? Yep. So I would... Uh, the position of the pads would be the same position that I would imagine we had for CPR, which is um, one on the precordium and one in the auxilla. Um, this... this um, the defib needs to be changed into a synced mode, um, which I would do immediately, and then I would slowly up titrate. What, what do you mean by sync mode? 
Uh, so that is the administration of the, sh the, the electricity um, sent to the uh, uh, environment. This is pacing rate, right? Yeah. Have I just spoken? <laughs> you, you may be thinking of um, synchronized defib of rapid AI. Yes, okay. I'm sorry. Yes. No, thank no, you. <laughs> Um, I, I did mistake. Sorry, misspeak. <laughs> uh, the pressure of the recording. Um, and so then I would increase the millivolt um, up until, so I change it to pacing mode. I would increase the millivolt threshold up until we achieve capture. I would confirm capture both electronically and mechanically by feeling the pulse. And then I would go 10 to 20 millivolts above where we achieved capture. Um, in this patient who has had likely cholinergic crisis, but it could have underlying cardiac. Um, disease. I'd also be looking to inform my cardiology colleagues of this case um, to consider transvenous pacing. Beautiful. Hey, we'll end it there. That was great, Megan. Like, fantastic. So, what I'll do is, um, hey, so for everyone on YouTube, um, um, uh, we'll end the viva there. Um, uh, so, I'll, I'll put a link up to the final exam course. I'll put the full feedback as well for the viva. Um, so, yeah, that's where we'll get it at. And um, yeah, good. So. Uh... Thank you so much for listening to this anesthesia final exam case scenario. For the full episode with all the feedback and notes, please check out my final exam course at the link provided in the story notes. So thanks for listening and please share with anyone who might be interested. See you next time.